reality is something has happened. The reality is that for many of us here, the word evangelism produces a very mixed emotion. We know it's a good thing, but we feel nervous about it. We feel apprehensive about it, and above all, we feel guilty that we don't do it better. And why we feel that, I think, is largely down to what we think evangelism is all about. Now, I've got a confession to make. I have lived life in the fast lane. Before becoming a pastor, I lived the somewhat racy and dangerous life of a librarian. (laughs) And uh, I had a friend who used to come to the library where I worked, and he'd recently become a Christian, and what he did was he went around the library putting tracts into books. That was his way of doing evangelism, you know, praying that in the purposes of God, someone would take a book out and come across a tract and read it and be saved. And the deep irony was, my boss said, go and find those and take them out and destroy them. That's just how it worked. You see, my friend thought that's what evangelism was all about. He perceived that was evangelism. And, and maybe you've come across some sort of evangelism which has sounded to you pretty strange and weird, and you said to yourself, I could never do that. Um, if ever you've been to London and you've gone on the tube in London, I've had this experience a few times, I think it was on the Bakerloo line, uh, you get in the carriage, Londoners never look at each other, you know, you don't do that, that, that weary would be a serious breach. And, uh, and, and then you're sitting down in the carriage, and then someone stands up as we're traveling between stops and says, can I just have your attention, please? And then gives a very brief gospel word. You know, you're sinners and you need Jesus and Jesus has died for you, just come to him. Now, it's, it's remarkable. That is the only time uh, I've seen Londoners lift their eyes up, either from their mobile phones or from the, the metro or the standard, and look at each other and raise their eyebrows. Evangelism. And, and the guy would get off at the next stop, ready for the next train to, to come about. Or, in fact, staying along the idea of the, the, the tube. Some of you may be to Victoria Station. Occasionally there was a chap at the top of the elevators at, at Victoria. Thousands being carried up these elevators, and at the top you had someone who was just shouting Bible verses out. And they thought that was evangelism. Or, or guys who set up their mini PA systems. Um, I've come across this a few times, just to drop something in to make you think that this old guy is cool. Um, I went to a, well, it was actually, I went to my second Springsteen concert in Wembley. You know, it doesn't get much, but I have two bosses. One is sitting over there and one is Springsteen, okay? Um, So, and there was a guy. Now, we were streaming in. I don't know how many, 60, 70,000 of us for the Springsteen concert. And there was a guy who set up his little PA, and he was sort of shouting into it about Jesus and your sinners and failures, and Jesus has died for your sins. Now, in one sense, I admire him, but I, I'm really, really not sure that's uh, evangelism, what it's about, or whether it's something that you or I would feel comfortable doing. You see, for us, evangelism has become something pretty strange and fearful, and maybe personally unnatural 
And yet it's something actually that we feel we should be doing because evangelism is a good thing. And so what happens is there develops that mix of guilt and inactivity and passing the buck. See, and then what happens is evangelism is something that we leave to other people because we perceive the cost is too high for ourselves. And I think as a result, fewer and fewer people are being presented with the good news concerning Jesus Christ. I also think the trouble is many Christians have got it wrong. The trouble is many Christians don't understand what the Bible says about this most vital of subjects. And therefore what we're looking at is of the greatest importance and significance. So do have a look at Colossians 4, 2-5. It was the reading Emma brought to us uh, earlier. Just have a scan through that. You see what happens. Paul begins by talking about prayer and seeking prayer for his own ministry of public proclamation. But in verse 5, he changes from writing about his ministry of direct evangelism, where he says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly, to the believer's responsibility for what I will call indirect or responsive evangelism, where he says to them, make the most of every opportunity. Look, I want to come to the heart of this whole issue. I want us to grasp how it is that we're to share the good news about Christ. I want us to realize what it is that biblical responsive evangelism is all about. And to that end, there are just two points that I want to make. Um, by the way, you would have been given a handout. I hope you were given a handout when you came in. You don't need it at this moment in time. Okay, just to say, it's, I'm, I will tell you when I'm referring to that, so you just keep that there. Keep a Bible open instead. My two points are this. Number one, the evangelist is a special person with a specific task to make gospel opportunities. And so you know what's coming up. Point number two, to witness is for all Christians with the general responsibility to respond to gospel opportunities. So let's take that first point. The evangelist is a special person with a specific task to make gospel opportunities. You see, for some reason, Christians have assumed that they're called to evangelize in the same way that an evangelist would operate. They assume that because a particular Christian is able to stop people in the street and talk to them about Christ, so should they. They assume that because particular people can preach on street corners, so should they. They assume that because particular Christians distribute tracts at major sporting events, so should they. But the point I want to make here is that the ability to make opportunities out of nothing isn't something that every Christian is called to do. Indeed, I think it can create great problems if unsuited people do just that. It creates problems for them, and it creates problems for the inappropriate way that Christ may be presented as a result. No, rather this ability is something that God gives to a special group of people that the Bible calls uh, evangelists. Indeed, let me say, I think the tension, the reason for this tension 
is that those who are gifted as evangelists assume that what they do is something that every other believer should do. And they tell them so. And they conduct impressive seminars. They preach impassioned sermons to that end. Their passionate zeal may be personally contagious, but their biblical ignorance can be pastorally disastrous. Let me show you that to be an evangelist was an especial task within the church entrusted by God to a few. In fact, the word evangelist only occurs three times. Number one, we'll put them on screen. Number one, people gifts to the church. Ephesians 4.11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor teachers. So clearly, not everyone is an evangelist. That, that's the argument here. Not everyone is uh, an apostle or a prophet. Not everyone is an evangelist. Second place it crops up is in Acts 21, verse 8, concerning Philip, the evangelist. We read there, Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. By the way, this Philip uh, is also the guy who's mentioned in Acts 8 where Philip did something that was absolutely typical of an evangelist. Verse 30, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. Now that's an evangelist for you. you know, jogging along. Hey, do you know what you're doing? Great. Philip the evangelist. And then the third place we find that word is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. Where as leader of the church, Timothy was to publicly proclaim the gospel. Do the work of an evangelist. Now, could I say this? There are still people that God equips to be evangelists today. They have a passion. They have an ability to make opportunities to share the gospel. Some are full-time in that work. People like Roger Carswell and Jay John and Glenn Scrivener and Michael Lotz and others come to mind. Whilst others use that gift as they can. In fact, you see, we've only been here at Charlotte Chapel for about three months, but already I've, I've counted in my head at least four immensely gifted evangelists that I see in this congregation. They don't do it full time, but they just, just do it. They, they are evangelists. They've been called, they've been gifted as Evangelists, And may God give us many more evangelists who are able to do that, who are able to go and take those opportunities, make those opportunities and share the good news in, of Jesus Christ in that way. We need more evangelists. May God raise up many more and may we as a church be ready to identify and train and encourage and use evangelists in our church. But the second point I want to make is this. To witness is for all Christians with the general responsibility to respond to gospel opportunities. You see, there in that passage of Colossians 4, Paul's been writing to the Colossians about his own public ministry of gospel preaching and evangelism. But he changes emphasis as he goes on to encourage them to use every opportunity they have to share Christ. Not in the direct way that he does, but in a responsive manner. He says, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. 
And by the way, this just didn't seem to be Paul's pet idea. Peter mentions it too, 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And what I want to suggest is that the biblical pattern for evangelism is that every believer, every believer, should be ready to respond to every opportunity that comes their way to speak of Christ. They don't need to force the opening. They can wait for God to give it to them. Look, I think this is biblically consistent. Let me give you some reasons why I think it's biblically consistent. Number one, it recognizes God's sovereignty. You see, actually nothing can be achieved unless God moves in the first place. As he's in control, we can expect that he's able to move in our neighbor's or our colleague's life so that questions are asked that give us an opportunity to share Christ. Secondly, it leads us to prayer. See, as we're dependent upon God for these openings rather than our own ingenuity or nerve we are forced back to seek him for such opportunities and so I'll spend more time in his presence than working out how I might force an opening that's actually why prayer is so vital in the life of our church I hope you're committed to, to prayer to seeking God it is God who raises the dead the spiritually dead it is God who opens the eyes of the spiritually blind it leads us to prayer thirdly it encourages holy living and loving action you see holy living is inextricably tied up with responsive evangelism what creates the questions in people's minds is the deliciously distinctive and different lives that we lead as believers and the lovingly practical ways we do them good. So it prompts the question, why are you different? Why do you tick as you do? Why are you so honest? Why are you doing those things? Indeed, actually, I think the reason that, so few, uh, that, that you may have so few opportunities to share the good news about Christ isn't to do with the fact that you haven't got the right strategies or that you don't have enough courage. It's to do with the fact that your life is no different to others. It's compromised. It's unattractive. Little wonder, therefore, that Paul's opening words to the Colossians in this section on evangelism are, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. And we'll say more about this a little bit later. But we've got to live the life Fourth thing, it develops a Christian mindset. You see, there are many opportunities that arise in the course of natural conversation at work or over the garden fence or at the shops. Someone asks you maybe about what you think about a story that's in the paper or in the news or on some particular topical issue. Can I say this? As a Christian, you will have a perspective that is likely to be radically different from theirs a viewpoint that will challenge the materialism, the relativism, the secularism that they have. Ah, so therefore, we need to be those who have this Christian mindset. That also gives us the opportunity to speak of Christ. But, but then I believe, and by the way, I, I'm, I'm going at, I'm 
speed for this because I want us to get to these sheets. They're important, I think. I, I think it's not only biblically consistent, I also think this is practically wise. I'll tell you why. Number one, it removes strain and false guilt. You see, if evangelism is down to me forcing an opening, then there will be pressure to manipulate situations. And if I find, for example, at the end of the day that I haven't been able to present the major points of the gospel, I'll feel the guilt of failure. But when I'm waiting for that opportunity that God provides, I can rest in his providence and timing. I'm not going to get upset if on a particular occasion the chance hasn't arisen to share Christ. I'll rest in God's sovereignty and I'll wait for another opportunity. It removes strain and false guilt. Secondly, it develops genuine friendships. See, some Christians always feel the duty to blast anyone they meet with the gospel as soon as they can. And they maybe get a reputation at work. And the outcome is, you know, they're known as Bible thumpers. Avoid them. And they don't have any opportunity to develop the friendships that more naturally, in God's gracious timing, will lead to a profitable sharing of Christ. Friends, we should love people for who they are. Your unconverted, your unsaved friend, colleague, are not gospel fodder. They are to be loved, full stop. They are to be treasured, full stop. We should love people for who they are and trust that at just the right time in that, God himself will provide the opportunity so that we might speak for him. Thirdly, it allows effective, relaxed, and open conversations. See, when I respond to others, I'm not intruding into their space. Rather, they've chosen the time, they've chosen the place, they've cho chosen the subject. They're relaxed, they're inquiring, and therefore they're more open than when you go in with all guns blazing at a time that might be inconvenient upon a subject that might not be touching their major need of the moment. If they ask the question, they've invited me to share what I believe. And in presenting Christ, I am legitimately responding to what they've asked. Fourth thing, final thing I'll say under this head, it embraces all personality types. I think the danger with imagining that evangelism is exclusively about forcing situations to share Christ, it's that some people will inevitably back off and do nothing. They feel so uncomfortable with such an approach, it's alien to their nature. Maybe you have never engaged a friend in gospel conversation. You've never had that conversation. You've never had that chat. You've just backed off. You've gone into your shell. And yet when my responsibility is to respond to the opportunities that God sovereignly provides, then I'm being invited to share, to, to be me. And to share honestly and openly how Jesus Christ impacts my life. And such an approach involves every believer. It excludes none. No one is excluded here. If I'm saying, hey, the Bible says, respond to the opportunities that you're given, to the friends, the people that you meet, that is excluding none. It's not asking you to have a particular personality. It's not asking you to be an extrovert. It's not asking you to be pushy. It's asking you to be you. And for some here, this simple truth might be radically transforming. 
So I'm going to give you a challenge before we get to those worksheets. Let me challenge you to ask God to give you an opportunity to speak for him tomorrow. And to mean that prayer. And to be willing to respond appropriately when God does open the way for you to speak. This is not a manifesto where you walk out and you say, oh, thank heavens for that. Andy said, I don't need to get involved in evangelism. That is the very opposite of what I've said. What I'm saying is that we must be ready, ready, the Bible says, to respond to every opening that comes our way. And therefore, when you pray, maybe at the close of the service, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow morning, could I just ask you this? Make this a genuine prayer. Lord, give me an opportunity to speak for you. Would you pray that? Would you, would you pray that sincerely? And then would you go into tomorrow expecting, praying that God's going to give you that opportunity? And then when it comes, would you be ready to take it and, and speak of Jesus? By the way, it'd be great if in your growth groups or even come and see me next Sunday, tell me how that went. Because I just think we've ducked the issue for so long. We don't even see these opportunities coming up. And yet, clearly from Scripture, God bless evangelists. God give us evangelists. Let's use evangelists. But let God use each one of us to speak about Jesus to those we know. Now look, here's the exercise I'd like you to do. You've got a handout. Are there any left? Have we got any left? If you haven't got one, just stick a mitt up. I think, have we got any left? It looks as if we've got two. Okay, so just grab one of those. Just a quick exercise. You, you'll need a pen for this, so um, beg, borrow, or just beg or borrow um, a pen. Now, I want you to think about the people that you know, and uh, we'll see how this, you'll see how this works. You'll see the reasoning for what I'm doing. So the top thing, you should have my street or flat in front of you. Could we bring up that slide deck? Thank you. So it should look like that. There is you in the central block. Now, I don't know where you live, what your block of flats look like, what your road looks like, what your hall of residence looks like. You've just got to try and work your way into this. There's you. Who are the people who live around you? Just write their names down. So the person living next door to you on the right, Put their name down. Try and fill in as many of those spaces as you can, please. It may be that you don't know all your neighbors. That's cool. Um, you can work at that. Um, put down the names of people who live just round about you, opposite the street, opposite the hall, whatever. Just write down just a first name, nickname. Probably not a drawing. You know, you get what I'm saying. There's a few Billy No Mates here. That's never, that's, a, that's not a problem. Um, let's go on to my work or club. So, you know, some of you will go to work, some of you don't work, some of you will have clubs, social activities, that's really good. 
I'm just asking you to try and identify either people who sit near you at work or in the lecture theater or in the club you go to. So this is not your neighbors we're now talking about. It's just those that you have this interaction with. Could you stick, I've given you six little circles there to stick names in. Could you just think about the people you know God's sovereignly given you. But did you know in Acts, when Paul is talking to the Areopagus, uh, he, he says, God's put us where we are deliberately. Uh, and by the way, that's, that's really good news. That means wherever you are, wherever you live, wherever you're studying, God has put you there deliberately. You may not like your flatmates. God has put you there deliberately. You have opportunities for this. So just stick down those that you interact with in that way. turn over the sheet and you come to unsaved family tree probably not the best title but uh, you know what I mean uh, you are there and if you have family members who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior I've given you a few boxes maybe you'll need to add boxes of those who are unsaved in your family tree fill in uh, I put parents, aunts and uncles on the row above you, but maybe there are others that you will be uh, filling in there, brothers or sisters, row below that if you've got kids or nephews or nieces or if you're as ancient as I am, you may even have grandchildren. So just um, fill in as many of those people who do not know Jesus. By the way, if you're here and you do not know Jesus... It is, as we've already been saying, it is the greatest news to know that there is someone who has saved sinners from their sin and he can be known and he invites you to come and to know the forgiveness of your sins and to have life to the full and to know a life that is full of meaning and not meaningless chance. And uh, maybe the thing you'll want to do is maybe talk to some folks, maybe even the people who invited you here and you go why do you take this so seriously and their answer will be because there is nothing more important on the whole planet than you know peace with God and that your sins are forgiven there is no message more important okay we've done that unsafe family tree now you will have a number of names there now what I'm asking is that you choose out of all the names you've put from the previous three I'd like you to choose up to 12 names. So when we come to the next sheet that we've got on screen there, in that uh, pink box on the left-hand side where it says names, there's a dozen gaps there. Could you transfer a dozen of the names that you've got and put them there? So a dozen names. I'll give you a, a moment or two. This may take a fraction longer. Two hundred fifty. Three hundred, two fifty. Okay. And just just thinking that if we do this exercise, we're maybe talking about three thousand different people that just us here have connection with who do not know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. That's wonderful. Right, not that they don't know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. That's not wonderful, but it's wonderful that we have opportunities with three thousand people to share the good news of Jesus. Okay, so hopefully you've got names there. It, you may have got up to the dozen. It may be less 
than that really doesn't matter. You'll see what we're trying to do. Now, if we're to be ready to respond to our friends rather than just duck the issues, we need to give some thought to it. This isn't just going to come carelessly. You know, oh, I was praying for someone and they've asked me a question and I don't know what to say or I don't know how to engage them. Okay, I'm just asking you to think through now. Let's take the first name you've got there. You will see I've put some boxes under the heading of objections. And I've put three objections. And I think they're the three major. It summarizes the three major objections that these folks may have to the good news of Jesus Christ. Number one may be emotional. Number two may be intellectual. By the way, that is an L that has slipped down onto the second line. Number three may be social. Let me just describe to you those different categories again. In the emotional area, um, actually, we're not surprised to discover that questions to do with suffering will often be number one on the list of problems because we live in a broken, we live in a fallen world. We're all subject to pain and disease and death. And our innate God-shaped sense of justice cries out, actually, against the seeming contradiction of a sovereign and loving God allowing these things to happen. Probably the number one objection you will face is in this realm of the emotional, in the realm of suffering. Uh, just listen to these headings before you start sort of ticking whether that's going to be an issue for your friend as far as you know. Um, I think that, that whole issue came to the fore. Do you remember Stephen Fry uh, when he was asked by uh, Gabriel Byrne on Irish television? Uh, Gabriel Byrne said, suppose it's all true and you walk up to the pearly gates and are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her or it? The 57-year-old replied, I'd say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery that it's not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. Uh, uh, and I think the issues that uh, are being highlighted there by Stephen Fry are the issues that, that many, because this broken world, it's painful, it hurts. And it may be that uh, emotional issue. The second box is that of the intellectual objection. Um, can I just say, from my own experience, people who raise intellectual questions um, ask questions that are rarely original to them. They are just looking for some sort of defense mechanism against talking about Jesus and owning up the authority of Christ. Uh, of Christ. They've, they've probably just picked up these ideas uh, that have been popularized by others. Now, it's not to say that the questions that they ask aren't good or genuine questions, but rather that they are just a defense response. And they actually, I think, may be countered more directly than the issues that have arisen from the heart. So if someone says, well, what do you say about my, I lost a child? You don't go in, oh, I've got an easy answer for that. You, you don't, there is no easy answer for that. But, but someone who raises an intellectual issue, often those can be more easily and quickly addressed. And then there is the third category of what I've called the social dimension. Um, that's what comes out from living in this uh, pluralist society. There is a massive reaction today against Christ's claims and teachings. 
And probably you've come across it as well, um, that the claims are that the Christian faith is either homophobic or transphobic, and they really hate the exclusive claims of Christ that he's the only way, and they say, what about other religions? That's what I mean by some of the social objections. And actually, at times when those things are raised, it's at times really hard to get a hearing because they think you're just one of those nutters. Um, and that takes time to listen to people's stories and understand where they are coming from and, and talk to them about the issues that they've been going through and try to take over the time to model that better story. We have a far better story. We have a far better narrative. Uh, and we need to get that over. So those are three uh, areas, emotional, intellectual, social. Just go down the names of your friends and as far as you know about them, just tick if you think that issue is emotional, intellectual, or social. You, you may not know, so leave it blank. But if you know for sure there is an issue there, just note it, just tick it. Because if you do, it's going to be alerting you to the fact that maybe you've got to put in some work here. You've got to think about these things. You've got to be doing some research. You've got to be reading some of the books. And then, under opportunities, I put down hospitality and I put down needs. We should be seeing, how can we show love? How can we share a meal with that person? Hospitality is one of the great ways. Eating food together is brilliant. Jesus did it, repeatedly. He was eating meals with people. And, and, and folks, eating meals with others is just a brilliant way of, of sharing. Can you give hospitality? Or is there a need that you can meet? Is that person, is there an issue that you could help them with? For example, if it's a mum who's just uh, given birth, could you go and uh, just knock on that door and say, hey, congratulations on the baby, brilliant news, I know you're going to be absolutely exhausted. Look, here, I've just made a meal for you, you can just stick it in the freezer, heat it up when you need to, and you try and meet those needs. You show the love of Christ in practical ways. Your brain is engaged. How can I love this person? Just tick through with those names, whether you think there's opportunity for hospitality or whether there are needs that you can meet. Just, just go through your list of names and uh, address those there. I think some of you have already given up on me with this list, but that's fine. Um, as long as you're seeing what we're trying to do here. And then the connecting points. By connecting points, it's fascinating. When you look at the Apostle Paul as he engages with evangelism, he's always trying to find where he connects with people. You know, sometimes, I, I was a Jew. I'm a Jew. When he went into a synagogue, he'd be saying, oh yeah, you love the law, I love the law. He'd probably be wearing his rabbinical clothes. And he would say, let's, let's have a look at the law. Let's see how Jesus fulfills the law. Or he would say, Ah, oh, you speak Hebrew, I speak Hebrew, and he'd give his testimony in Hebrew, or maybe he'd give his testimony in Aramaic, or he'd give his testimony in Greek, and he'd made connections all the way with people. One of the things we should be doing is looking, how can we connect with people? What do we have in common? Again, if we're to be serious about reaching our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is it that we can connect with them? Just know as you look through the names, are there connecting points that you have with them? You see, 
my whole thing here, as we try and come and deal faithfully with the Bible, is that if you are not an evangelist, if you're not gifted as an evangelist, and again, let me say, God, give us more evangelists. If you're not gifted as an evangelist, you have no excuse just for switching off and saying that's the job of the professionals. Just get them into Charlotte Chapel. No, 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 no. Tomorrow, you go into whatever situation, whether it's your, your home, whether it's lectures, whether it's work, wherever it is, you are going to your mission field and you must go prepared into your mission field. Having given thought, that is being obedient to the scriptures which tell us to be ready to respond. And if you're not ready to respond, then you have been lazy and disobedient as you've handled scripture. Here are men and women whose eternal souls are lost without Christ, who are going to eternity under the just wrath of God. Friends, we have a responsibility to be ready. Why don't you pray for that opening? And when it comes up, why don't you respond? having been ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your